A buddy of mine one time told me he couldn't do the whole Christianity thing because to him, it's just living to die. You spend your whole life obeying a bunch of rules and regulations and then one day you inevitably die and you may go to heaven, you may go to hell. And to me, I think surprisingly, that's actually a well-practiced belief in the world or thought of what Christianity truly is and what the gospel truly is. I drew a diagram here. Now, obviously, you guys can't see it because you're listening to my uh, voice, but the diagram I show is kind of a timeline of what people really think Christianity is. The timeline starts with the day we're born, and it goes through, and the line represents our life. In our life, we have some good choices, we make some bad choices, and then we get to the day of our inevitable death, And based on if we had more good choices than bad choices, we go to heaven. But if we had a couple really bad choices, then we go to hell. And, oh yeah, throw some Jesus in there on the cross. He died for our sins. But it doesn't really make a difference if I'm not doing that much good stuff. And that's Christianity. But that is completely ludicrous to the idea. Now, there obviously is faith and obedience in Christianity. But there's a better way of representing that diagram because the one I just described, Jesus wasn't mentioned at all. The gospel was placed on everything we do and think. It was our actions that lead to our salvation. But the gospel isn't about us. It's about Jesus and his actions that lead to salvation. So we're going to kind of talk about what the true timeline of our lives in Christianity looks like and what Jesus has anything to do with that. I mean, we know he died for our sins, but is that really make a difference to you and your actions today? Let's take a look. So the first question we need to ask is why did Jesus die? If we take a look now, I'm going to open up my Bible here. If you take a look at Romans 6 verse 23, I'm going to be flipping through a lot of scripture today, so bear with me. Romans 6 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we sin, and all of us do, since day one, uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden, the wages of sin is death. And it's not because God is some tyrant that says, Oh, you made a mistake. I'm going to kill you and torture you. That's not God at all. What happens is sin truly leads to death because God made a perfect creation, a perfect world. But when we start hating one another, doing sinful sexual practices, stealing, killing, lying, slandering, you name it, it destroys the world. It leads to death in our relationships, death in our life, physical death, spiritual death. It leads to just violence and destroys the good world that God made for us to enjoy with him. And so the wages of sin is death. And so rightfully, we are inevitably going to die. That's just how it is because we're all sinners. But... If you look at Hebrews verse, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, the law is referring to the Jewish law, the Old Testament. What's happening here is in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, the first several chapters, if not the whole book, really, but... It talks about these offerings. When you sin, you have to have this kind of animal sacrifice. If you do this, then this sacrifice, and so on. 
So instead of us being at the altar all day, every day, slaughtering animals because we sin all the time, every day, whether we know it or not, Jesus, being the perfect spotless lamb, died on the cross for us and was the offering for our sins. It was God in the flesh, the Son of God, who died for all of our sins, uh, every single one of our sins. It's not a sacrifice we redo every time. It's not something we, it's not a sacrifice we redo every week with like communion. We don't re-sacrifice Jesus. No, it was a one-time, one-and-for-all sacrifice that was sufficient for all sins everywhere at all times. So, Jesus' sacrifice really played a role in regards to our sins, but we're going to keep going on in the study. If you look at 1 John chapter 2, speaking of dying for sins, there's a very profound verse that I think is very neglected and missed in the Bible. We as Christians like to think, okay, Jesus died for my sins, and that's great. And it's true. Yes, Jesus did die for my sins, but let's take a look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He, that is Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. What does propitiation mean? It means God's wrath has been turned away from us, and it was poured out on Christ on the cross. And so God could destroy the world right now at any second if he wanted to, but because of Jesus' sacrifice, God is being merciful and loving and gentle with the world and patient that we may turn uh, away from our sins and repentance. Propitiation, I like to think, is kind of like the deflector shield of our inevitable punishment for our sins, the condemnation. Jesus Christ took that blow for us, not because God is some tyrant and Jesus, his son, is the loving one that protected us. we got to remember that Jesus is God and God the Father is... God, and we could go into the huge tangent of how uh, the three Godheads work, but ultimately this was God the Father's plan to have Jesus be the propitiation for our sins. Sorry for the confusion. I really hope you're still with me. But we see in this verse that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. A lot of times we think, Jesus died for my sins, but that sinner across the street, oh man, he is far from the Lord. And there, that is true, there are lost sinners, don't get me wrong. Those people still have to accept the gift of salvation like you and I. But we neglect to mention the fact that Jesus didn't just die for Jake or you or whomever. He died for everyone. Yes, even that sinner across the street that may or may not be really away from God or may or may not have really hurt you. Yes, Jesus died for that person too. So are you treating them like that? Let's, let's go on. That's a study in its own, to be honest. Uh, the next point I have is the righteous was killed in the place of the sinner. This scripture we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 27, verses 16 through 23. When I read this story about Barabbas being the murderer and Jesus being sent to be crucified, I used to think it was just kind of part of the story. Okay, yeah, the people were disgusting. They chose the murderer over Jesus, Jesus was crucified, and that's kind of as far as I took it, until, it was honestly maybe a month or two ago, I was watching a video that was talking about this, and it really, really painted a picture of what the gospel writer was getting at in that story. Let's read the verses now, and then I'll uh, hopefully not ramble too long about what I mean here. So Matthew chapter 27, verse 16 through 23. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. 
So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of the envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with the righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Now at first, we like to think, How disgusting of that crowd that they chose Barabbas, the murderer. Scripture and other places in this account call him the murderer. Uh, Barabbas, he was a murderer. Um, We like to judge the crowd here saying, how come they chose Barabbas over Jesus? Obviously, we know they uh, rejected Jesus. But right here is exactly the picture of the gospel. God is sitting on the judgment seat, and he has before him Jesus, the righteous one, and you and I, the sinner. And God, he has the opportunity here to punish the sinner, the murderer, Barabbas, or in our case, you and I, the sinner. Or he could take it out on his son, who is righteous and holy and perfect. And so what does God do? He spares us, letting the sinner, that is Barabbas in this case, or you and I in this analogy, he lets the sinner go free And the righteous one, who did not deserve death or punishment, but the righteous one was the one who was punished, condemned, beaten, mocked, crucified, and ultimately killed. We all know sin leads to death. Well, if Jesus didn't have sin, then he should not have died. That just spiritually should not have happened. But it did. And because of that, I like to think he was wrongfully wrongfully condemned, right? Uh, because of, well, we would call that lack of justice in the United States if I was framed for murder and sent to the electric chair, if they even practice that anymore, forgive me if they don't. But the point is, the gospel here is Jesus in our place. Us, the undeserving sinners, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the liars, the thieves, the drunkards, the druggies, whatever you want to say, forgive me if my terminology was a little inappropriate. But we... Uh, we were set free and Jesus willingly took the blow for us and died in our place and God gave his son for us that we may be set free and that his judgment and wrath that needed to be done it's not because God was just cranky and having a bad day it was the only way that we all could be saved and spared in the end a lot of people say that oh you know there's other ways to heaven than just believing in Jesus And to that, and this might be considered hate speech, forgive me, because I just recently heard a story that somebody said Jesus was the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father through him. And they were arrested and fined for hate speech. So I'm going to come out and say it. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. And to say anything otherwise than that is completely ludicrous, disgusting, and offensive. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And if there is another way to heaven than Jesus, God is not stupid. God would not unrighteously take out punishment and let his son, Jesus Christ, be crucified, beaten, and mocked for you if there was some other way. Why would God do that? I have a young son 
I don't think I could ever give my son's life for anybody. But if it was the only way to save the world and I had to do it, then yeah, it needed to be done. But if there were multiple ways to save the world, then heck no, I wouldn't give my son up on the cross because that just would be ludicrous if there were multiple ways to salvation. But the fact is, there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Anything aside from that is a complete slap in the face mockery to the sacrifice that Jesus lovingly did for you and I. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Anything outside of that is not a conversation I want to have with God when we see him on Judgment Day and he brings up the crucifixion and the pain that Jesus went through. He did that for you and I because he loves us and because he didn't have to do it. He could have said no and let us all go to hell, but he did do it knowing it was the only way to be saved. So let's embrace that Jesus is the Savior. And the next point I want to make... I'm sorry, I got a little heated over that, but we should, darn it. (laughs) The next point I want to make, um, Jesus was exalted on a throne. But when we think of the crucifixion, we don't really think of that as Jesus' enthronement. We often think when he was resurrected, after the 40 days, he was ascended into heaven and he was sat down next to God. And yeah, that is an enthronement, don't get me wrong. But Jesus' enthronement was actually when he was exalted up on a wooden throne. But what is the wooden throne? The wooden throne was the cross. When Jesus was raised on the cross in front of everyone, everybody saw Jesus exalted. Now, I'm going to elaborate more on that point in a sec, but I want us to go back now to Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 through 9. There's an excellent correlation here in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21, verse 6 through 9. Moses... In this story, uh, Israel had sinned and God was bringing down uh, a punishment on them. But ultimately, we'll see in the story that God was merciful and kind to his people. But let's read here. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. Excuse me, I lost my place. Uh, (laughs) There we go. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So here we have all these people that are infected with uh, the pain of the fiery serpent. They're all infected probably with venom and pain and so on, and it ultimately was leading to death. This paints a great picture of us with our sin. It's leading to death. It brings pain and destruction in all of our things in our lives, our relationship, our health, so on. But with uh, the serpents, those that were affected by the serpents, when they looked to the wooden pole, there was a serpent on it. And when they looked at that and focused their sight on that, the pain and the poison and so on that they were suffering was cleansed and purified, and they were able to live and be free from it. Now back up, and, or I guess go forward, <laughs> look at the gospel. We're all sinners. Jesus was exalted on the wooden throne, that is the cross, And when we all in life focus our sight on Jesus with faith 
and acceptance of the gospel, focusing on Jesus, then and only then are we cleansed and purified of our infection and our impending death, that is, sin. And so when you see Jesus being enthroned, we know that only when we focus on Jesus are we able to be purified from the impending death and doom that is due to us or should be due to us. Now, the next point I want to make is Jesus was planted in the earth. And you might be thinking that's kind of an odd way to talk about Jesus being put in the tomb, put in the earth. The fact that he was planted, well, (laughs) what do you mean? Well, let's take a look at Matthew 13, verses 31 through 32. You might already know what I'm getting at here, but hear me out. Verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So we see that Jesus was crucified, right? But what happened then? Well, Jesus being the mustard seed, I like to think of in this analogy. He says the kingdom of God is the mustard seed, but let's think about it. If Jesus is the mustard seed, he was put in the earth, you know, after his crucifixion, put in the tomb. And after the three days, he was resurrected. He came out of the dirt, came out of the tomb. So the seed that was planted in the earth sprouted life. It was put in the earth and came out alive. And so what does that necessarily mean for us? Well, we are the vines which bear fruit. We are part of the kingdom of God when we are added through faith and baptism. We are added to that sprouted, sprouting mustard seed that is Jesus Christ's resurrection, that life, that new life. We are added to it, and we go on, like Christ, to bear fruit. That's why we're told as Christians, if you're a believer and follower in Jesus, you're to bear fruit because you're part of the kingdom of God. You're part of the seed that was planted. And we continue to grow and grow and grow, of course, until the return of Christ. Every single day, the kingdom of God grows. That's why it's important for us to bear fruit and contribute to the kingdom of God so we can grow. John the Baptist says a tree that doesn't bear fruit will be cut off, cut down, and thrown into the fiery furnace. I like to think I know nothing of gardening, so forgive me for my ignorance. But if you have a plant in your yard, you can think of a shrub or a bush or roses, I don't know, again, forgive me. If you find that one of the sticks are dead, but the whole tree overall, or the whole plant overall is alive, but you have a couple dead sticks or twigs, you cut them off and get rid of them because it makes the plant look ugly. It overall can bring down damage to the overall plant's health. So you get rid of the gross dead stuff so newness and new leaves and new twigs and life can bloom and flourish and the plant can be beautiful and healthy. You have to get rid of the dead stuff or else it affects the overall plant's health. So that's why we need to bear fruit, not because we have to earn our keep now. Now that we're a Christian, we have to earn salvation. No, salvation has been given to us because of Jesus Christ and we've been added to the kingdom of God. And if we really accept that revelation, we naturally are going to bear fruit and love one another and bring people to the kingdom of God. But if we don't and we just totally neglect the kingdom of God, we're not losing salvation because we just weren't good enough for Jesus. 
no, you, I guess for lack of better terms, don't have salvation because you don't truly accept the gospel. When you truly accept the gospel, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to feel compelled to have mercy and grace and bring other people into the faith. When you truly understand Jesus, truly understand how big and deadly your sin is, and truly understand how much we've been forgiven, we naturally are going to want to love others and share the gospel. So a saved Christian works. Works without, or excuse me, faith without works is dead. The Bible isn't telling us that, oh my gosh, now that you're a Christian, you have to keep your salvation. You have to keep working for it, to maintain it, to earn it, to keep it like we so on think with our good choices, our bad choices, our good days, our bad days. That's not what the Bible's stating. It says, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you're baptized, you will be saved. But there will be dead plants at the end of times that will be cut out from the kingdom of God. Not because they just weren't good enough for God and they lost salvation. No, they simply did not truly accept the gospel because if they did, there would have been fruit to show for it. And so my question for you is not necessarily what all are you doing for the kingdom of God to earn your keep? Not that at all. My question for you is, have you truly embraced the gospel? If you have, you don't have to worry about it. Fruit will come. You will bear the fruit of love. But you, all, you also have to put in the effort. You can't just simply open your Bible and say, all right, I'm bearing fruit now. No, when you truly accept the gospel and truly believe in Jesus, you're going to feel compelled to talk to people and share the gospel kind of a tangent here and forgive me the friend that I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that said that Christianity is kind of like living to die you just spend your life waiting to die I as a Christian never thought I would have the courage to really spread the gospel until the past couple years when I truly really understood and embraced it to the point where I started preaching and teaching and so on this isn't about me What I'm getting at is, I would have never thought I'd have the courage to share, especially to this friend, because this friend is very set in stone in their beliefs, and that's that's fine, you know, I'm not going to force somebody to the word, right? They're set in stone in their ways and their beliefs, but the other day we were on the phone, and the phone and the phone call ended, and it was a little over an hour, and I totally realized that in that hour, I spent the majority of that time witnessing to this friend about Jesus. We were talking about political issues and unrest in the U.S. And I just completely poured my heart out about Jesus being the good news and so on and so forth. And so the point is, when you truly embrace the gospel, <laughs> you're, I like to think of it as no one's going to really be able to get you to shut up about it because it's just that amazing good news. You don't really have to stress sharing it when you truly accept it because it's going to be all you talk about. If you love sports and your team wins, you probably won't be able to shut up about it the next day at work. Forgive me for my inappropriate terminology such as shut up. Um, But you're probably not going to be able to stop talking about it at work because you're excited that your team won. And likewise, our team, that is God, Jesus Christ, won the victory, and so we will naturally talk about it and bear fruit. So back to the very beginning of the lesson when I talked about uh, the gospel, the diagram, the timeline, if you remember, where it talked about birth and good choices and death and heaven and hell. What does the diagram truly look like? So the one I talked about at the beginning, the wrong one, showed that we were born and then the line went straight across the page to death. And that represents our life. There were some good choices, some bad choices. 
At the end of the path after death, it forks off to two trails. One says heaven, the other says hell. Based on how many good choices to bad choices we've made, you may go to heaven or you may go to hell. Oh, and throw some Jesus in there, that's important too. That was kind of the worldview of Christianity. But the real diagram of Christianity shows this. We are born and we live our life and at the end we physically die, right? That's the same as anybody's life. And we're going to have good days and bad days, but at the end of that path, at death, there's only one road, and that road leads down to hell. And you're thinking, what? (laughs) How is this Christianity? The path to heaven was destroyed because we've sinned. We're sinful creatures and we're selfish. But Jesus Christ on the cross paved the way back to heaven for the Christian, the believer, in the process shattering the path to hell. Meaning, our life now in Christ is born, we physically die, and we go to be with the Lord because Jesus purified us and made it that we can go to heaven. It's not about earning it with good choices and bad choices now. We simply follow Jesus because he earned it for us. He gave it to us freely. And so your life isn't about making some good choices, some bad choices, throw a little Jesus on top, and you might go to heaven. No. Our life is, we all make bad choices and we're doomed to hell. But, God being loving and caring made it that, you know what, I'm going to make all the good choices for you guys. Since you guys can't do it for you, I'll do it for you. So he sent Jesus, who made all the good choices, was perfect, died the death we should have died, and he gives salvation and mercy and forgiveness freely to us. So when we are born again, we believe and are baptized We don't have to stress over whether we're going to heaven or hell based on our choices or earning it. No, we go to heaven because of Jesus being perfect and righteous and his sacrifice and his holiness. It doesn't matter my good choices or bad choices. What matters is Jesus. Now, you might say, well, does that mean if you're saved, you can just go on sinning and you're good? Well, like I mentioned earlier... If you go on sinning as a Christian to the point where you're not really living a Christian life and not bearing fruit, then you truly have not yet accepted the gospel. Now, there are times in our lives where we mess up. Like in my life, I became a Christian 10 years ago, but I fell off into some sexual immorality, to be honest, for a short period of time. But the fact is, I went back to a horrible, grotesque sin, but I repented and so on, and I'm back, you know, back to where I should be, of course, in regards to that behavior. I'm a born-again Christian, I've been a Christian the whole time, but I just wandered off and I did a horrible thing and I've repented. So our lives have that. Some of ours have it very significantly, some of ours don't really. What matters is the fact that I came back and the Lord called me back and the Bible talks about that. But what I'm getting here is if you spend your whole life, you claim to be a Christian, but you simply are just indulging in sin and you're not repenting and not having newness of life or not showing any signs of born, uh, bearing fruit and being born again, then you truly have not embraced and accepted the gospel. If you embrace and accept the gospel, you don't have to worry about losing your salvation because God promises it to you for accepting the gospel. If you, quote, lose your salvation, you can't lose what you don't have. If you don't embrace the gospel, you're not losing your salvation. You simply didn't have it. You don't have it if you wander away willingly and don't truly embrace the gospel. God's not a liar. He says, if you believe and be baptized, you will be saved. And how do we show belief? 
Well, when we truly believe, our lives will truly show it. Mark 16, 16 says, he who believes not will be condemned. He's not, God doesn't say that as a Christian, you're going to lose your salvation. No, he's stating that if you believe and be baptized, you're going to be saved. But if your life doesn't show belief, it means you truly don't believe. And if you truly don't believe, you will be condemned. So you're not losing your salvation. You just haven't truly embraced and accepted the gospel. So what exactly is Christianity? We're all sinners, but Jesus was perfect and righteous for us in our place and for the whole world. If we accept that gift and love and believe God, we're going to bear fruit and we're gonna, we don't have to worry about anything. We're going to have persecution and stuff like that and hardships that we have to worry about. But we don't have to stress over whether we're going to lose our salvation because when we truly embrace the gospel, we're saved and we'll bear fruit. But if you don't embrace the gospel, then should we not be deserving of hell? My sin makes it that I was deserving for hell. Jesus paid for that sin, cleansed me. I embrace Jesus, I'm going to heaven. If I neglect the gift and the offering of my paid for sin, if I neglect it and ignore Jesus, then yeah, I 100% deserve hell because there's no excuse. There's no reason for me to go to hell. It's already been paid for. The door to heaven has been opened and it's a free gift to me. If I neglect that free gift and I end up in hell, that's my fault. That's my problem, 150%, because I've neglected a free gift. That's a free gift. There's no excuse to go to hell. And so if you say that God's not loving because he sends people to hell, no. God didn't send you to hell because he's just some jerk. No, God is loving. There's no excuse for you to go to hell. And if you end up there, that's because you neglected a free gift. I mean, a great example is if I went to prison for murder and I was sentenced to life in prison and the bail was a billion dollars, just coming up with numbers, and somebody I hardly know came in and paid off my debt so I could be set free, I would embrace it because I want to be free and that's a debt I can't pay. And so I would have life and I would be free again and my sin would be forgiven and absolved. But if I neglect that and ignore that free gift and sit in prison and rot, that's my own fault. I mean, that's foolish of me to ignore that free gift and sit in prison and rot. I have no one to blame but myself because my sin got me there. I had an opportunity to be out forgiven and free and I ignored it. And now I have to sit there and rot. And that is completely my own fault, my choice. And that's why it's very important that we embrace and love Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. It's the only way. The way, the truth, the life is Jesus Christ. Nobody goes to the Father except through him. Nobody is saved without faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is it. No other religion, no other secular practice, no other science or beliefs or whatnot. Jesus is it. And anything but is a complete joke. So stick to Jesus, love Jesus, embrace Jesus. And I'm not saying this because I'm trying to shame you. I'm saying this because I love you. I don't want our pride to separate us from the truth. And somebody goes to hell because of their pride and they neglect Jesus because they think they found a different way to heaven. I'm telling you these things because it is the truth and I don't want anybody to be led astray by these practices. You know, if there was a car driving and let's say I was in a car and there was a car in front of me with their, uh, and all I could see were their rear lights and it's dark and foggy and we're going across the bridge and then the lights in front of me just disappear. 
when I stop my car and I walk out and I see that the car drove off the bridge because the middle of the bridge is broke and that car plummeted to their death, the people in that car, what am I going to do? I'm going to naturally stand out in the road and wave down other cars to stop them from plummeting to their death because I care about people and I don't want people to drive straight into doom. That's exactly what I'm doing right now when I talk about Jesus. The bridge is out. Thousands and millions of billions of people are plummeting, coming close to the end of that bridge, and they could all fall off and experience doom and death. And so me, knowing the gospel, I'm standing out on the street, waving you down, trying to get you to stop so you don't do something foolish. I look like an idiot out in the road, waving people down in the night, in the fog, in the cold. I look like a fool, and you may honk at me and yell at me and curse at me, but I'm doing it because I love you and I don't want you to fall off the bridge. But if you do fall off the bridge, you know, you ignored the messenger. And so is it my fault? No, I'm out there waving you down. Now, if I wasn't waving you down and you plummeted, yeah, that would be my fault because I knew about the truth and I ignored it and I neglected the fact that other people don't see the bridges out and I neglected to tell people. And so other people fall into the bridge, that's on me. So it's important that I'm here sharing the gospel in an intense way to save your life, but also know that I took accountability for my knowledge of the truth and did everything I could to save as many people as possible from plummeting off the cliff. So will you please respond to the gospel and be saved today and accept Jesus and know that Jesus has done everything for us because he loves us. I really encourage you to embrace Jesus, accept Jesus, and love Jesus because he made the first move, and for lack of better terms, that's quite romantic (laughs) when the man makes the first move, right, in terms of proposing or being kind and opening the door and giving a lady flowers or surprising them with a nice date. The point is, for the lack of a poor analogy here, women go crazy when the man makes the first move of uh, romance and love. Well, in terms of this. Jesus, that is God, made the first move, reached his hand out of love and intimacy to us. And so, we should accept it.